Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We started a conversation last week. Reuben took us into the realm of documentary hypothesis biblical criticism. Uh, that was you. Wow. <laughs> we were on a dig. We were on a dig. Really? We were on a textual dig. Uh, and so the other thing is, um, after last Friday, I went home and collapsed and um, didn't do services last Friday night because I had a stomach bug with 100, over 100 degree fever. Um, and so I realized I was pretty out of it last week when I was teaching. Um, so there was a lot of questions that I was kind of like, uh, like you know, you're walking through you know mud in your brain to try to like come up with what's going on. So I I got home and went, what did I even answer them about half of those questions about dates and times and. Rabbi, it was a great session last. Yeah, it was. <laughs> we never would have guessed. Thank you. So I um, I was a little fuzzy on kind of being able to communicate the the entire there's a lot of complexity and I'm not trying to excuse not knowing what's going on with it's complex um, but when we ask questions about the text and when things originate you have the dating of sources and then the chronological events of the Torah right that we're used to seeing like this and then we have the chronology of real history so you've actually got three timelines going you know, you have what's actually happening with the sources, which goes like this. And then what happens with, you know, biblical history, that this happened before that. And then what happens in actuality in real time, in real life. So, so when you ask when does something happen, it's when does it happen here? When does it happen here? Or what's going on with it over here? So... I'm going to give you first, so, and the sources are J, E, P, and D, right? We talked about that. The Yahwist, the Elohist, the uh, priests, and the Deuteronomist. And so what's important to know is, is why is that confusing for me to be able to sometimes talk about it is because often the priestly source is in Genesis. A whole hunk of Genesis is written by the priestly source, which is... Late, right? We said there was a big argument. There is an argument. I think the majority, I'll step out on a limb, the majority of scholars go for a late P these days. Um, and we're going to look at a little bit about why. Um, so if P is late, like exilic, and is writing Genesis, you can imagine when you ask me, when did that idea arise in ancient Israel? Well, <laughs> some of the ideas in Genesis are very, very, very early material. Some of them are as late as P. So it's very hard to, it's just not an easy chronology, even within the text, to say, oh, yeah, this follows from that, follows from this, follows from that, right? Because it's all over the place. And then you add what we think of as history versus what actually happened, and then it's hard to place events as well. So we're, we have a few visual... And, oh, so this was all rattling around in my brain as I'm looking at the triennial reading for Emor for this week. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Th- really? This is what I have to work with. Really? And Robert, God bless you, said, you know, you always find something, right? And it just was not happening. Um, and then I read an article that quoted an introduction to a version of Torah that I happened to have on my shelf I pulled that article out, and it was all about the dating of this Parsha, and that in comparison with another Parsha, is how we start to date some of the priestly material. And I thought, okay, there it is, dropped in our laps, right? That we were just talking about this, and this Parsha is one of the ones, along with another Parsha that I'm going to tell you, um, looking at them together, we understand something about the dating of P. All right, because remember, so there's this argument you're going to understand a little bit now about how scholars get to that position of an early or a late P, because we're we're going to do a little biblical scholarship, okay? Using this week's parsha, so I'm staying within part of the framework. <laughs> so I'm going to hand out to you this wonderful 
color schematic, which I've never seen before. It looks like your hard drive. <laughs> um, I've never seen this before. I love it. I'm now going to like put it in my permanent, like you know, library. Ha 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 So that's, I mean, that's part of what we're going to talk about. How do scholars know where to put that? Wow. Whoa. <laughs> we're not going to spend huge amounts of time on the colored thing, but I want you to see it because it's important. And, and I'm a visual learner, so if you show me a graph, I go, oh, I get it, right, in a whole different way than if you yap at me about it. Yeah, for an hour. All right. So you've got here your sources. We know that we we've talked about the sources, right? We've got J. What are our earliest sources? And I have this other cool little diagram that I that I printed out. But it didn't have dates. And look where it puts P, right next to D. And I'm like, oh, I can't give them that. No, 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 no. All right. So, but. But our earliest sources, remember, are J and E. There's a whole host of material in the ancient Near East. Early Israelite culture emerges from Canaanite culture. There's an influx of something, right, going on. You have the south, you have the north. They are not the same. And... There's a whole bunch of material swirling around that's been around forever and that's been reconstructed and it's got the new version and the older version and the preferred version and, right, well, this is an alternative translate, right? So you got all that swirling. Some of that comes together by an author, J. J takes some of that material and there's a J tradition. That is a southern tradition. There is a northern tradition and that is the E the Elohist, the, call, the writer that calls God Elohim until the third chapter of Genesis. After that, it gets very confusing. But up until chapter three of Genesis, the Elohist calls God Elohim. That's a northern source of taking a lot of northern material, leaving a lot of northern material. Jay takes a lot of southern material and leaves a lot of southern material. The earliest that we have of, of Israelite material coming together is J and E. Scholars argue about when and why did J E happen. I told you what I was raised in rabbinical school, you know, kind of with this idea that David in the year, around the year 1000 BCE is pulling together this crazy group of 12 loosely confederated tribes which had been ruled by judges. Now, already, we're going to stop there. Where does judges appear in your Tanakh? Mm -hmm. Before David, they are governed by judges. All that judges material is talking about this. Way over here. Where does it appear in Tanakh history? Way over here. Right? Already confusing. Right? Already say what? Right? So the period of the judges is here. It's before 1000. A charismatic leader arises when there's some trouble on the border and the 12 tribes kind of come together to have each other's back to fight the Phoenician, to fight the Philistines, to fight the Amorites, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Jebusites, whoever, right? They come together and then they when it's not needed anymore, they go back to their business. David is the one who's pulling them into a nation state. He's unifying all the tribes in that strip that we call Israel into one national body. Some people believe that is when J.E. comes together because you need to take the northern version of the story and the southern version of your traditional stories and put them together. Other scholars place J.E. here. That is a huge difference. So some, some scholars want to argue J.E. is a result of the northern kingdom being conquered by Assyria. They come to Judah 
and they have their stories. Like now they need to keep their stories alive because they've been conquered by Assyria. And the folks in the south are like, "Well, wait a minute. We don't call it the civil war. We call it the war of northern aggression." We got to write our story the way we tell our story. So so Jay writes, you know, that then they have their story and so then now you have JE. Those are very different explanations for what starts the whole JE business and we don't know. We don't know which is one which one of those is true. You have to go to texts, you have to go to history, you have to go to archaeology to start trying to figure it out. But we remember, we don't have extra biblical proof of biblical text outside of the Bible in archaeology. We have no archaeological evidence to work with when we're talking about texts. Right? So just let that sink in for a second. <laughs> the oldest, you know, surviving texts are very late. Very late. So we don't know when any of this was written because we don't it's not like we have shards of Genesis by carbon dating. We know those were written down right over here. And even if we did find a little hunk of Genesis on a clay thing dating to here, was JE a source? Or was that just a little hunk of Genesis floating around that neighborhood and doesn't even begin to get put together with other chunks from other parts of the neighborhood until way later? We don't know. So what do the scholars use? They use the text to certain language in it to think this is where they start using extra biblical sources to a place historical events. Was there a big fire at Chazon? In the third century BCE, right? So they start looking to, to place events that happen in Torah. But even when the event happens, doesn't tell you when the text is written. They're all theories. It's all theory. It's all theory. So that's why when I say it's complicated, it's complicated. And half of what I say you have to take with a grain of salt because it's how I was trained. That's already one <laughs> set of opinions. Right. B, filtered through my preferences, you know, or... Or biases, and so now it's another, right? It's another layer removed. From, so it just is a very complicated business. But so look at your, so we got J and E, the red and the green. What surprises you as you look at this? Anything about the red and the green? J and E, the J E source. Ha ha ha. Did J.E. show up over here in Numbers? So clearly, how old a source is, you can you know nothing about how old a source is based on where it occurs in the Torah. Numbers is a later book than Leviticus, right? But it has earlier source material than Leviticus. Numbers is based on J-E with a whole lot of P. Okay? So that's a little surprising. What surprises you about P? Look at the purple. Purple is P. It, it even occurring in Genesis for some reason. What does? Purple. Yeah. So P is all the way, all the way throughout all four books. Why are there only four books here? Because presumably Deuteronomy is all the redactor. Because presumably Deuteronomy is its own source. It's not mixed up with all this JEP business. D is its own source. Right? So the book of Deuteronomy, that's, that would be the fifth book tacked on over here, right, it is its own source. So there's no need to put which, it on here. Which is, so that's different than R, the redactor. That's different than R. Oh, okay. So, so <laughs> right. So now I'm going to blow you away just a little bit. D's not on here. According to the article we're going to look at today, D is earlier than P. <laughs> D, D was the uh, one of the two P's. Deuteronomist is not P. I'm sorry. But you, last week you also said there were actually two different parts of P, some people think. Yeah, the holiness code, we think, is kind of a, an interesting P source, yes. Which is 
what we were looking at last week, and this week is still a little bit of the Holiness Code. Right? So this is the liturgical calendar as set forth by the Holiness Code. All right, so I just blew your mind a little bit, right? D is earlier than P. So, so it doesn't appear on here, but it would not be over here. It would, you know, be... It shows up on the back of the... It's shown no, on the back. Right, so I gave you another timeline that puts these sources chronologically. Because if you're like me, I'm like, wait, what? Show me. All right, so I'm showing y'all. Year 1000, between 1000 and 900 BCE, this timeline gives you J. Right? It's being compiled, right? The stories of Jay are being compiled. The stories have been told. They might not have been. There's arguments now about was it even an oral tradition for a very long time. Bless you. Why do we believe that? Some people are saying, why do you believe that? Why couldn't they have been written, right? As soon as it was writing, why weren't they? So we don't know. But of course, all these stories are swirling, right? They're all pedimentos. You have a Starte in this culture. That means Ishtar in this culture. That means, right, they're the same goddess, they're just called different things. I don't mean to minimize it. They are called different things in different cultures, those goddesses. It's the same pedimento of themes and stories associated with that goddess. That is what we believe about things like the patriarchs. They have been around in the region forever in terms of the pedimentos of, of stories and themes surrounding them. We believe a lot of Sarah material was lost, right? But she would have been a goddess figure. Then becomes a matriarch. Right, as goddesses are demoted in the patriarchy. But those stories have been around forever about Sarai, the princess, magically has a baby at 90-something. That is a fertility goddess story. 100%. That is a goddess fertility business in the region. Under patriarchy, under the Israelite, Yahwist patriarchy, that story has got to go through a lot of reconstruction. Right now, it's the male super god that causes that to happen to Sarah. So there's a reconstruction of the story. But the Sarai material would have been much older. It must have been a real pull between the patriarchy and the matriarchy. You bet. This is where... You bet. Which is why we read the Hagar text this year from a matriarchal standpoint. I wanted us to just explore what does it look like? What do these texts look like through the lens of a matriarchy telling these stories and preserving these stories versus the reconstruction of the patriarchy? Because I think we don't really access a lot of the deep meaning of these stories if we look at them as patriarchal texts. We must understand them in their context of a matriarchy that was still having a lot of influence on the, you know, on the life of the home. We get strong women characters. Rebecca, come on. Sarah, right? They're strong characters. Rachel, they're very strong characters. In a very much contemporary setting, the same thing repeats when you have the first woman to be ordained, Regina Jonas in 1935. Her story is lost. After the war, Victor Frankl knew about her. Leo Beck knew about her. Nobody was talking about the first woman rabbi. Because she was gone and nobody had to deal with her. Until 1989 when the wall came down. So this happened contemporary. That's exactly right. What so, and 1989 when the wall came down, an archivist who was going through papers at the Neue Synagogue in Berlin came across a very little box of her papers. We have one picture of her. So she was lost, right, because she was destroyed by the Nazis, as was so much, right, of our culture and our people. Think about how much was lost, and then who took over after that destruction? The men, and they had the authority to disappear her. I'm sorry, what was her, what was her name? Regina Jonas. Regina. Regina. Right. Jonas. For the Americans. J-O-N-A-S. So, so that is what happens to a lot of the Sarah material. We believe it happened with a bunch of the Isaac material. That the folks who are invested in telling and keeping those stories alive are gone. Something happens and they are gone. And the people who take over are not so interested in Sarah. Or they need to put her in her place. 
or put her on a shelf in a little box. And the folks who, you know, told the Yitzchak stories, well, the people who take over are not Yitzchak people. They're Jacob people, right? Or Moses people. Right. Moses is northern. Moses is from the northern Jews. Was Hagar also a goddess figure? Probably. Because she started a nation. So, yes. So probably, or, or, or a queen type, you know, a very powerful female. There's, from the matriarchal perspective of Sabina Tuval, who did that research, she believes that a goddess story about a woman, a goddess in the wilderness, those texts are stuck together with the Hagar material. So all those texts about Hagar in the wilderness were once wilderness goddess stories that then get put with Hagar. All right. So looking at this, this puts the Elohist between eight and 900, the e-source. Then you get J.E. just before 700. So that's a 300-year difference from what I told you. Who's right? don't know. I like my story. I like the story that it's about building a nation and trying to pull everyone's stories together to get everybody on board rather than this one got destroyed and so they run and bring all their texts and now these people are like, well, if you have your text, bring it in. I can't. You're like, and, I don't know, it's just... There's something, or maybe I'm just invested because it's been a long time that I've, that I've believed that. Whatever. Whatever our craziness is. Look where D is. You see D? D, what is D responding to and dealing with? Yep. Yep. D is dealing with the trouble going on in Israel. Some people want to put D at the time of King Josiah, and under Chizkiyahu, he find they find a scroll while cleaning a temple in the closet, a closet in the temple. Sorry. Um, and they find a scroll and they take it to Hulda the prophetess and she decides it is in fact genuine and old and Josiah tears his clothes and, and starts freaking out that we have gone astray and that this, this text that he reads says we have completely gone astray we've blown it because we didn't know that this is what God wanted what did God want? How did they blow it? What, what were they doing wrong? A bunch of stuff. But if you look at D, what is D very concerned with? Not to idol worship. Yeah, but let's say you're worshiping Yahweh. According to D, you can only do that at the temple. D is very concerned with centralizing worship. Some people say D is responding to the Babylonian exile. God has now withdrawn into God's heaven. God isn't walking around talking anymore in a garden. Now, God has withdrawn into God's heaven, and there's a distance that you hear in D. Right? It's all coming down as um, rather than a, a relationship that we've seen a little differently. Because um, how I mean that's what happens when you've been what you thought was faithful and your whole place is destroyed, right? D. Some people think is responding to the exile. Some people say it's a religious reform before the exile. Lots of people, and I didn't have time to blow this up for you, so I'll just show you. Just you don't have to see the letters. This first this first um, line of boxes says J says J E D T one. The next line says J-E-P-D, all in the same line. And then D2 is between D1 and D. So what is that saying? There are some scholars who take Deuteronomy and say there are parts of Deuteronomy that are as old as J-E. Then there are some parts of Deuteronomy that um, are between J-E and P. And then some say that, that D is concurrent with P. So it's just, 
You, you can get all these different diagrams, right? D and P are directly across from each other here. But the article we're going to look at, because we're just going to do a little biblical criticism, so you see how it works, is saying, mm-mm, P is dependent on D. All right. So that gives you D. Then you see where P is on here. Definitely post-exilic. Right? The exile has already happened. P is dealing with the returnees. What do we do now? That, and, and look at your colors. Post-exile, what do we do now? Where do you see that show up? Where is all that material? Mostly in Leviticus. Talk to me about Leviticus. What does Leviticus talk about in terms of all this ritual? Where is it placed? In the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, in the desert, before coming into the land of Israel. What is it actually dealing with? Second temple, period. Take that in for just a second. All of this P material in Leviticus that gets put in the tabernacle, way over here, on the actual time, you know, where, where that would have actually been, is that, that's where it's, you're going to take the showbread and the menorah, and you're going to erect it out of dolphin skin, blah, 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 is set over here. What's it actually talking about? What's going on in the second temple? That is a big difference. So when you say, when does this happen? When does this arise in Israel? As you often wonderfully, curiously, great, wonderful, ask me. (laughs) Right? Because some of the stuff that's over here is really old. But some of the stuff that gets placed here is super late. How many years later is that? A lot. (laughs) If we think of the telephone, I mean, there must have been a lot of change in translation that might have been over the the centuries that yeah. 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 All right. So you. Oh yeah. Thank you. Adam brought it. Right. So I was a little late because I kept trying to do this here, and I said this is ridiculous. So I'm giving you what I was going to draw up here, which is the timeline. This is from a Christian source. Um, So you're going to see New Testament, or what we would call the Christian Bible. Right? So the Christian Bible uh, dates are on here as well. All right. So, and I'm not going to argue about these dates, right, wrong, whatever. I just want to give you a sense. So when you ask me... When is that? You look at David. See where it says Samuel, Saul, David, Solomon. That's the United Kingdom of Israel. How long did that last? A hundred years. That's how long there was a United Kingdom of Israel in ancient times. A hundred years. Right, the golden age. Right? It's nothing. In historical, right? So then we have the divided kingdom. Look at 931. The kingdom is divided into the north and the south. They split. Right? Because Jews, this is what we do. A new denomination because we're not getting along. Just, just look at the numbers. Just follow the numbers till you see 931. Go up or down from whatever number you're looking at. To get to 931. Right? All right. Now, I've been yapping here about the Babylonian exile, yada, 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 yada. What's happening, you know, before that? We got Assyria conquering the north. Isaiah is already writing. Do you see that? Isaiah. Some people call this Deutero-Isaiah. Jeremiah, Ezekiel. We believe Amos is even before this. Right? So, Judges, 
way before this. So material that we think of as further down in the Bible is actually concurrent. It's being created concurrent with P and D. Okay? This is why it's complicated. Because if you want to make a full chart, you need to put in here Amos. Now, that doesn't appear in Torah. But if you wanted to have like something underneath here, another table, that's happening at exactly the same time, here you would have Amos, Isaiah, right? All these prophets that appear later in our text. You'd also have Chronicles, right? There, there's some material that would be concurrent with P and D. Kings. When was our text completed? Is, is there a general recognition? You see the New Testament being created. Mm-hmm. Was it after that? Was it somebody said, "All right, this is done. We're baking it in." I mean, yes. So you mean when was it the canon set? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As late as the Talmud, they're arguing about whether or not Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs, should be in the canon. Rabbi Akiva argues that it should be and makes a convincing argument that it is a metaphor about the love of God and Israel. And it gets in. So it's it's late. So the Talmud is codified around six four four to six Mishnah is two hundred. The Talmud is between four and six hundred CE. Four hundred CE at the earliest. 600 at the latest. But Akiva's, but Akiva's argument is earlier. Than Correct. 400. Correct. 400. But, but they're still writing. Of our era. They're, they're talking about his arguments. Yes. As late as 400. C. C. But did we have an organization at that time that said, that's it, I've heard the arguments, it's done? The rabbis. The rabbis, right? Yes. The rabbis who who write the Talmud are the ones who decide on the canon being closed. So the scribes say, okay, got it. Now we're going to start writing the Torah. The texts continue to circulate. Even ones that are not canonized continue to circulate. They don't have Gutenberg. There's no printing press. So... Yes, there becomes a scribal tradition of, okay, but it's the Masoretes who really take on preserving the canon as we know it and the text as we know it and their early medieval period. So this is well into the diaspora when this is fine. Oh, yeah. But we're gone. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're, we're spread out. Yes. Did- However, we are centralized in, where's our headquarters? Babylonia. Babylonia. Exactly. So that became that became the center of Jewish life and learning. Yes, Palestine was a backwater. There's the Palestinian Talmud. It's the Babylonian Talmud. Everyone looks at right. And there was enough authority there to say this is now done. That was the only authority, really. The only authority, right? Because the folks back in Israel, there was a second temple. Like no one really cared. Yeah. It was kind of shvach, and then it's destroyed in seventy. Once the destruction of 70 happens, there's no authority outside of the rabbis. The priests are gone. The temple's obliterated. It's been blown up. Two million people are killed. It's obliterated. It's all, New York is blown up. Where's your headquarters now? Where's any authority to rival Babylonia? There isn't one. Babylonia becomes the authority. Yes, they check with some folks in Palestine, but the Babylonian rabbis who become the creators, the reconstructors of biblical tradition based on these texts. How do we reconstruct what's left? Do we see their influence in any way where it might have been different than the influence prior to the destruction of the temple? Because the Babylonian Talmud is somewhat different. So there... There would have been tension. There was tension all along. Tension goes back. Tension goes back always. Yeah. Amos is already writing, right? You know, that this is like all messed up. Y'all are all messed up. You priests and the whole system, right? So 
It's all about show. It's all about ritual. What happened to caring about people, right? That's Isaiah, right? So the tension's always been there, but there's a growing authority. As times change, there's a growing authority that develops among the rabbis already when the temple is standing, already in Israel. Jesus is one of these. Jesus is one of the rabbis who is taking on the priesthood. When he goes to the temple courtyard and overthrows the the money changers tables, he is doing Jewish prophetic work. So that movement against the corruption and wealth of the priesthood has been around. It grows in authority as people are dissatisfied and ideas are changing. But 70 seals the deal. Was there archaeological evidence from that era? Yeah. So we do have archaeological. Sure. The Arch of Titus shows them carrying the menorah as part of the spoils of having destroyed the temple. In right, we get the the arch that celebrates the destruction. Look, look at which is a curious point. um, Look at the seal of Israel. The seal of the state of Israel. What is it? The official seal. The official seal of the government of Israel is a menorah. It is the menorah from the Arch of Titus. There was a huge debate when the state seal was being discussed. Why would you take, Dafka, a symbol of our destruction? Why are you taking a Roman glorifying their destroying the temple image and use that as a state seal? We came back. We're back. Here we are. Because we came back. We are back. Does the Qumran cave material, where does that fit in on the timeline? Yeah, so um, around, probably around the time of the destruction. In the 500s? No, 70. 70s? Yes, late. So they, uh, late, I shouldn't say early and late when we don't know what we're referencing, yeah, yeah. but um, they, they, they believed it was, I mean, it was bad. I mean, it was very bad. It was very bad. What Jesus was afraid, you know, what, what the rabbis were afraid of, what Jesus came to be. The reason the rabbis turned on Jesus is because he was bringing down the wrath of the Romans. They were right to be afraid. They were right to shut him up. Because look what happened. He's year 33. He dies. What happens 40 years later? Two million people are decimated and Jerusalem is blown up. They were right. So that early, there's trouble. And so some folks are like, we're done with the whole business. And they go to the desert. They're a bunch of, you know, radicals. And and they write their texts and they bury them, you know, knowing trouble's coming. And they'll come back to get them when, I mean, this is one theory, that when all of it blows over. And it's a competing sect. And then, then, of course, it doesn't blow over. Rome decimates Palestine and it's obliterated and the Jews are carried off and it's done. Locally, it's, it's done. Rita? I was just going to ask, you know, with all these different theories, yes. how can the Orthodox still say it's Torah Misenai or from God? I don't get it. You know, it's a really important question in terms of existentially. What is it we seem to need that fundamentalism of any stripe remains alive and well in 2016, right? People who deny evolution, right? So, because those same people that you're talking about that need this to be Mycenae believe that Adam and Eve were created. Like, it's right here. <laughs> it's, it's, right, it's right here on the timeline. Just so we're clear. Well, okay, but it doesn't say Australopithecus yeah. Africanus, Australopithecus but, Afarensis, but, right? This says the world was created 7,000 years ago. Okay, but Riddle. Okay. Riddle us. And, and, and uh, something like half of America believes that. Right? Okay, but Riddle us this then. What, what do you do with uh, an, uh, an Orthodox scientist? There are there are Orthodox scientists. So I I believe Orthodox and this I don't even know if I want to put this out there in the world, but <laughs> I believe they're able to hold some cognitive dissonance okay. and that they understand Adam and Eve as a story that really isn't talking about how the Earth was scientifically created. It's our story about how we're supposed to be with each other in the world and how we're supposed to interact with the created created world. Yeah. That were Shomrei Adama. So I, so I guess like somebody like Steinsaltz, Dean Steinsaltz would, would I guess, because he, he grew up kind of like as a mathematician, 
and a scientist. And he's clearly very orthodox in his worldview, and yet he's able to sort of carry on both conversations. I think they, they just hold a lot of cognitive dissonance happily. Like, they, they don't need to solve. I mean, because the people I have talked to like that, and I haven't talked to you know a whole lot, but you know, they say, look, we don't know what happened before Adam and Chava, and we don't know how long a period we're talking about when Genesis says the earth was separated from the water. It's called Yom, but Yom could be back then, you know, thousands of years, and that would make Genesis more accurate, right? You know, so we're not going to worry about it. It's not a scientific text. It's not worried about the science of it. It's worried about the meaning, and that God gave us on Sinai in these, in these stories, right? And so that's a way to kind of hold all of it Together. To answer your question, it's a 100% tautology. If you know anything about logic, it's a complete tautology. Everything is good. So if it looks bad, you're wrong, it's good. If it looks good, you're right, it's good. Because it's all good. Because it's all divine providence. So therefore, you define it all as good. And that's the beginning, middle, and end. You don't go any further than that. And if you stick with the tautology, it is 100% logically consistent internally. And that's all you've got. But, but Richard is talking about people who understand the logic of texts that are directly opposed, and they believe those texts as well. Yes, so he's asking, well, how do you believe, how do you believe fully in this and this at the same time? Which, you know, so that's what I meant by I think they can hold to dissonant realities. Because for them, it's not dissonant, right? They, you know, they find a way to. All of this sort of brings up, including the you know, the stories about the Sarai and before, is that we are selectively deciding that we're going to, even us here, forget you know all the way to the spectrum of orthodoxy, that we're going to take what these folks, the B and the D, that what they kind of ended up with, and exalt that as the divine word, even though. We all are saying that we understand that that was just sort of where it all rested. And to me, it really brings up, why are we picking this? (laughs) The answer is, some people said that we come up with the, well, that religion is all, you know, just uh, fictional. And so it doesn't mean anything to me. And then you have all the, the other side of the spectrum is, I need something. I need something to go on and figure out what I should do in you know, X, Y, or Z situation. And this has been around for a while. It seems pretty good, so I'm just going to use that. And where in the middle you fall? So, so yes and yes. <laughs> and, and sort of. Um, so the, at some point, as we just mentioned, the rabbis canonized the text. That's a communal decision to say there's, there's too much in the Norton Anthology of Israelite literature. Just, it's getting too heavy. We can't put it in our backpacks. It's, and then what do we, ref, like it just, it becomes, okay, this is it. This is the, the new edition, right? And they don't publish, okay, Encyclopedia Britannica. Anybody remember that? Yeah. Good, we're all old. Yes. Don't, okay, don't even look at me. Yeah. Don't even look at me. <laughs> you don't know from what we used to have to do to do research. You got a bad back from doing research. So um, Encyclopedia Britannica said, okay, like we're done. Here's our set. It's expensive. And to get it is hard. And you have to save a lot of coupons or, you know, sticky things from the green stamp. And that's expensive. So, but, but there's more that's written. There's more that happened. They learn more about what's in volume 13 under K. So, so, so what happens? What do you do? Do you go back and print a new edition to volume 13 at some point? No. You write a yearbook. You write an addendum. Every year getting a new book. A new yearbook every year that's going to comment on stuff they're not going to go back and change anymore. So that is the Talmud. That's the Mishnah. That's the Gemara. That's all of the discussion of this that stops being canonized. But has but a rabbinic bookshelf doesn't stop with Tanakh. It continues, right, into all of that other material. And those books remain as expensive as they were. Like it's exactly Encyclopedia Britannica, because they're not usually popular. So like. 
these huge libraries of rabbinic material. Like it, it doesn't. It goes on. It just stops. The, the, this text stops being altered. How, and some people then value Aviva Zorenberg and all that and heard your book every year. Uh-huh. And yet we go back, a lot of us, to the original without necessarily, you know, there's so much in there that, no, this is what we're going to govern. This is what it is. You know, you people who just go to Encyclopedia Britannica and like, that's it. Yeah. There, there's nothing past there. And we don't care about the yearbooks. We're staying with volume 13. Right. We don't care that thought has changed since right, volume 13. Right. And when you go to the encyclopedia, you know that it was written by somebody like you, but maybe who studied that subject a little more. When you go to Torah, it's God. Let me say God. very clearly, for some people, the folks who write Britannica are God. Yeah. <laughs> Who's your authorities? Okay. Who's your authority, right? And then... And many folks would turn to quickly the PhD, blah blah blah, Harvard. That they are God. Like they're. I mean, of course, I'm being sarcastic, but not really. Like they, they go by everything they say and give no credence to any wisdom tradition. That's old, right? We got both ends. We got what you're talking about. That oh well, this is from God. This is from Sinai. So it has to be authoritative. Like who cares what came after? Who cares what Zorenberg says, right? However, there are men, if you really know rabbinic literature, study with Rabbi Renner. Study with him. Because what he will show you, it's amazing. The rabbis all over the place. There's one famous story where the answer at the end of the story, they, they turn to God for an halachic answer because they're having an argument. And they don't know which side the halacha is really on. And so miracles happen. Like a carob tree flies by the window. A river turns direction and flows the other way. And still they're like, nope, we're not convinced. God presumably is doing all that. And so the rabbi who's got that opinion, right, is like, hello, carob trees flying, water changing, cor-. like, hello, halacha is clearly on my side. Finally, a bat kol, a divine voice, speaks and says, the halacha is according to Reb whoever, right? And what is the answer? What is the definitive answer of the Talmud? They take a verse from Deuteronomy. Remember Deuteronomy talking about Torah? It's not too far from you. It's not across the sea, right? It's not in heaven that you say, who should go get it for me? It's not in heaven. Don't worry about it. It's close to you. It's even in your mouth. So they take that verse from Deuteronomy and they throw it in the rabbi's face. The bat kol, the divine voice speaks and says, the halacha is according to rabbi so-and-so. And the rabbis say, Torah is not in heaven. Do you understand what just happened? It doesn't matter what God says. It doesn't right. matter what God says. It's up to us. Torah's up to us. We decide. The majority decides the halacha. Yeah, it's, a, it's a democratic decision. Lo bashamayim he. They take God's God's words, like air quotes for those of you who don't. They take God's words and flip them around and go. Thank you, Bot Cole, for your opinion. Lo bashamayim he. Torah is not in the heavens. It is here. It lives here. Halacha will be decided according to the majority of the rabbinic authorities. That is a conscious and radical move. They did not, the way we think, look at this and say, says right here, and so therefore, that can't ever change. That's what we think, but they didn't. They looked at that and said, well... If you look later, there's another, right? And they, they, they do this and come out with a completely different animal on the other side. And they are playing with it lovingly, but they are changing what's here and reading their own needs and priorities back into these texts. That they choose to even reference these to challenge, that they use God's words to challenge God is very Jewish. We're a textual-based tradition, you know, and, and that remains, in a way, unique. That, that even as they're reconstructing all of it, they're going to use this as a proof text to do it. Is, is canonization then just, does it just mean the end? In other words, it's not holy in and of itself. There's nothing mystical. Right. We're, we're just done. Yeah, yeah. That's all we should yeah. Walk out of this room. That's the way we should look at this. It's over. Yeah. 
I mean, uh, another way you can look at it is if you look at it from the, the Christian tradition, besides what's in the Gospels and the Epistles, there's an entire body of books that the Christians call the Apocrypha. Yeah. That's like 60 or 70 additional books, like the book of Tom, the Gospel of Thomas, and the Gospel of this guy, and the Gospel of that guy. And at some point in the, in the early <clears throat> councils or the deliberations of the early bishops of the church, they said, you know, this is in, this is not in. And at some point, I forget exactly when, they said, this is the, this is the New Testament. Alright, let's go to 47. Quick cheek chop. I was going to do all this biblical criticism with you. We now don't have time to do, but I just want to give you a taste. All right, 47 says, so we are in the book of Leviticus. We're in Leviticus chapter 23. That's where our Torah reading is for today, yes? Leviticus 23, God spoke to Moshe saying, speak to the Israelite people and say to them, these are my fixed times, the fixed times of Adonai, which you will proclaim as sacred occasions. It starts with Shabbat. And then goes through, right? Pesach, right? Sukkot. Okay. No, no. In the Bible. Leviticus in the Bible, we are in Parshat Amor. We are in Leviticus 23. This article that I'm showing you, the place we're at now, is talking about Leviticus 23, and it's talking about Numbers 28 and 29, which is the other place we see the liturgical calendar. This is one of the ways scholars date material. If you know Leviticus is a priestly source, and you're talking about when is P writing, then you look at material in presumably an earlier text and say, so what does P know? Or what's normative that P's doing in Leviticus? And what do we learn from that? So we're, we're going to see. Like, what, you, you just, like, how does that happen? How, how can you depend one on the other if you don't? Okay, here we go. So Numbers 28. This is about the book of Numbers, by the way. That's what this article is about. But it's talking about our chapter, so we're going to look at it. Numbers 28 and 29 present the major priestly code of practice governing the public cult of biblical Israel. It is the most elaborate and systematic text of its kind in the Hebrew Bible. Historically, as contrasted with its traditional presentation, this code, right, its historical presentation is the Mishkan. Right? In contrast with this, it is best understood as speaking for the cult of the second temple of Jerusalem. Although some of its rites surely go back to earlier times. They weren't making this stuff up out of whole cloth. There was a first temple, and there's pre-temple ritual. Right? So a lot of it's going to date back, but, but what they're talking about in numbers is second temple cult rites. Okay? It should be studied, numbers 28 through 29, should be studied against the background of the earlier cultic calendar preserved in Leviticus 23. So what's that saying? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's saying the Levitical material in chapter 23, our Parsha, is your basis for anything that's happening in Numbers 28 through 29. This is earlier material. Leviticus is earlier material. Okay? It should be studied against the background of the earlier cultic calendar preserved in Leviticus 23, essentially part of the holiness code. And with due attention to the overall history of sacrificial worship in Israel and in the ancient Near East generally. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Turn it over. The conclusion that Numbers 28-29 speak for the post-exilic cult of Jerusalem is basically... A diachronic judgment based on an analysis of sequential developments in the modes and structure of public worship. What's it saying about dating this material? They're arguing numbers 28 through 29 is based on Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 came first. This is based on that. How, why? 
do they say this is based on this and this is second temple? It's a diachronic argument. What is a diachronic argument? Hmm? So it's, right, based on, it's going to be based on an analysis of sequential developments in the modes and structures of public worship. Meaning, we're going to look at what Numbers 28, 29 sees as normative, and what do we know about the parallel history of what actually happened in Israelite observance? Then we'll know, because there's other texts, Ezekiel, Kings, there are other texts that mention the daily offering. Let's look very carefully at what the daily offering looks like in what we know are late sources. And guess what? It matches numbers. As opposed to other discussions. Does that make sense? All right, we're going to get an example. Drop down numbers 28 to 29, that second paragraph. Numbers 28 through 29 know of only one legitimate altar and say nothing about sacrificial celebrations in any of the Israelite settlements, although there was reference to local communal gatherings. This policy, right, that there's only one legitimate altar, which is what's expressed here, is predicated, uh, this policy, uh, sorry, what did I do? This policy is explained by the fact that legislation in the priestly source, P, is predicated on the centralization of the cult, a Deuteronomic doctrine that restricted all sacrificial activity to one central temple, historically the first temple of Jerusalem. What, is, what, is, uh, what does all that mean? Right? Until D, Israelites could sacrifice in their local places. Jacob, Offered a sacrifice. Noah gets off the boat and offers a sacrifice. Right? There, there's, there's many discussions of people offering in their own places until D. The Deuteronomist says, nuh-uh, right? And it is a political move to centralize all worship in the first temple in Jerusalem. Okay? Unless you have, have D as post-exile. And then it's the rebuilt temple, right, when they come back. So if there's only one altar in numbers, if there's only one altar, it has to be post-Deuteronomist. That helps date this text. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's one way we see it. The next one, next paragraph, several significant features of the cultic code of numbers 28 through 29 further point to its post-exilic provenance in the area of daily worship we note the two-phased tamid offering so numbers 28 through 29 says you're going to offer the tamid in the morning and in the evening this pattern is also evident in the special daily grain offering of the high priest offered as a holocaust and designated as tamid so there's two places we see this tamid business being twice By surveying biblical evidence on daily temple worship, we learned that no independently attested source from the the period of the first temple provided for more than one public tamid. So sources that we know are writing around the time of the first temple, none of them mention a two-part tamid offering. They only know of a -a one-time-a-day tamid offering. So if this says it's two times a day, this must be later than the first temple. Yeah? Thus, two kings referring to cultic practice during the reign of Ahaz, king of Judah, speaks of the burnt offering of the morning and the grain offering of the evening, also alluded to in the account of Elijah's encounter with the Baal prophets. So if you know something about when kings is dated... And Kings has two Tamid offerings. You know more about when this is dated. Most revealing as to historical provenance is the fact that Ezekiel 46, the chapter that outlines the public cult and a patently late source, knows of only one burnt offering in the morning. 
So kind of like, where's the last source we know of that references a one-time-a-day tamid? That gives you the date that must mean this must come after that. In effect, this suggests that as of the destruction of the first temple of Jerusalem, we have no evidence of a two-phase tamid. Because Ezekiel, when is Ezekiel writing? At the, at the destruction. So when the temple's destroyed, there's only a one, the first temple's destroyed, there's only a one time a day tamid offering. So it must mean it's second temple times that you have two. Yes? Could the two, could the, uh, to the could the two phase tamid be, in terms of the, once you have the exile, you have a much more geographically dispersed population. So is a two-phase Tamid somehow related to having eight days instead of seven for a festival in the diaspora? In the sense that because there's kind of like uncertainty yes. as to when certain yes. things happen. Yes, because the new moon had to be declared by witnesses. Right. And similarly, what's morning in one place could be evening in another place. Ah, um, I don't know. No. I have no idea. Alright, so go to the next page. Drop down to the very bottom of the page, the last paragraph on the page. No, I mean, don't turn your page. Shift your eyeballs to the next page. Just your eyes. And drop to the, the bottom paragraph that starts the same limited focus. Yes? Yeah. All right, go to the few, next sentence. Numbers 28 to 29 reflect the system of, of vernal inception introduced by Deuteronomy so that the first month occurs in the spring and the seventh month in the autumn of the year. So what do we know? We know that the Deuteronomist puts the first day of the year in the spring. Numbers 28-29 sees the new year as the spring. So that means this must be post-Deuteronomy. And if we know anything about when Deuteronomy is written, it's late. So it's got to be, after the destruction, it's got to be Second Temple. But that's in, that's in 23 by the spring. Let's, let's read on. The vernal inception is common to Deuteronomy and the priestly source. The system of registering months by ordinal numbers, first month, second month, whatever, however, was first introduced in the mid to late 7th century BCE. As indicated by the Ostraka from Lachish and Arad. So extra-biblical material that's found that gives us a, a, a date for the springtime being the new year. Yeah. What's, what's a, a piece of writing that's preserved on clay or, or uh, stone. Uh, and it continued in use during um, this wonderfully hard-to-pronounce period. In biblical sources, it is to be found in 2 Kings and Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. So, right, we know something about when that material is, with special reference to the holy days and festivals to be celebrated in the cult of Jerusalem. It goes on. I'm not going to take you through more. It also uses Sukkot as proof because, uh, and, and it says something about overturning Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 starts with Shabbat. Sukkot is based on, from that Shabbat, you count a Shabbat of Shabbats. You count seven sets of seven days. And it's, right, so, and this overturns the focus on the sabbaticalization um, of Sukkot. And both demote Sukkot from being Chag. Right, so... If Sukkot's not Chag, when do we know, right, that it wasn't observed as Chag, part of how you date this material? All right. In conclusion. <laughs> uh, let there be a conclusion. Um, so, so my fascination in rabbinical school, once I was exposed deeply to JEPD, um, I became fixated and fascinated with, all right, so is this old material 
or is this newer material? Because now I can no longer trust whether it was old or new based on where it was in the Torah. So is this a priestly gloss on the Rebecca material? Right? Or is this original? Like, and I was obsessed. And my biblical teacher of blessed memory, Dr. Tikva Freimerkensky, at one point, because I was annoying the crap out of her, I'm sure, in class with all these questions, finally just said, Amy, honey, we've inherited <laughs> a text that was put together at, you know, at the end by your black source, R, a redactor. And that's the one with the real power is the redactor. And whoever that final redactor was, or a school of thought that redacted these, it may not have been a person, it might have been a school, right? Whoever had authority at the time that redacts this finally gives us this as a whole. And so while it's fascinating clearly to you to pick it apart into all of its sources, we are given this as a whole. And we need to have a relationship as well and appreciate as well the redactor's work and the centuries and millennia of Jewish interpretation that see this as one one collection, one book. Um, you know, we sell this and then the other stuff after it. Now, of course, this is included in a larger canon, a thing of the whole canon, but we sell this as a unit for a reason. This is a whole text, a whole tradition, um, and we read everything else through the lens of this. And so I hope that you will come to appreciate, uh, Amy, that this, is, that, that this is something also of serious value, is the fact that it was redacted and has been treated as, as a whole um, for millennia. So I have taken her seriously, and so whenever I take it apart, I always want to make sure that we put it back together and say that was lovely how we might have gotten here, and this is Torah, and this is where we are, and this is what's referenced with all of its complicated pieces and parts. This is what has been referenced by our people in struggling to figure out how to live a holy, um, God-centered, meaningful life, and we are blessed to have inherited it from them. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.